0: The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take a personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to StockTech. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is regular analyst and contributor James Carla. Welcome, James. Good morning. I only call you regular, James, because we have a special guest with us today. Joining us all the way, you know, being remote used to be special. We're all remote now. So, Alex, you know what? You're regular too. Um, joining us also is our, um, our portfolio manager for the InvestMart Small Companies Fund, Alex Hughes. G'day, Alex.
1: G'day, Gaurav. G'day, James.
0: Yeah, hey. so we're all in. Um, we're all remote, and Alex, you're in Melbourne. Um, I don't think that should make any difference, but uh, this is the first time I think we've had you in the podcast for a while. So um, it's good to have yeah, you on board.
1: Quite a while. I was actually hoping we had videos because I wanted to see Gorey with a big beard, or maybe James with a moustache. <laughs> 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 I've, I've been sh- cutting my
0: hair. <laughs> oh, I, I've been um, shaving more often than I ever have been for some strange reason. I don't know why that is. My kids always complain about the the prickly beard. Uh, maybe that's, that's weird. It. Mm.
2: i've not been shaving much but i have shaved my head well not quite shaved it but
1: cut it cut my head.
0: have you guys noticed the showering schedule has changed a little at all yeah it's all over the show all over the place right yeah <laughs> nighttime showers daytime lunchtime showers it's my schedule is everywhere
2: well i used to mostly shower at the gym you know? yeah me too i used to I prefer yeah so now oh anyway
0: Yes, uh, well, that's the end of the point. No, no, no. We better get into some <laughs> stocks, <stuff someday. laughs> Alex. Um, you recently wrote up a quarterly of the the fund. Um, it's been a really rough month for everyone. Um, how has the small cap world fared? Is is are things looking a little bit better, or a little bit worse than average in your world?
1: Yeah, I mean, everything is just changing so quickly at the moment. It's it's been an extraordinary few months. Um, you know, Christmas feels like a couple of years ago, and I feel like I've aged a couple of years in the last few months as well. So it's been a really testing time. The, the portfolio was down 25% in March and that's, wow. that's our worst ever drawdown. Um, so obviously small companies are a really hard hit um, in times like this. You get probably bigger impacts to the businesses, but then you also get liquidity impacts as well. When, mm. um Essentially, the whole market discovered that coronavirus was a thing, and at that point, there's this huge sorting phase that takes place where businesses that previously you thought were solvent and had a decent future, all of a sudden that's in question, and so inv- investors might be selling stocks or adjusting the position sizes very quickly. And um, for an illiquid or for a smaller company, they're more likely to have less liquidity, and so if a bunch of investors decide to sell at the same time, then there may not be that offsetting buying support. So yeah that that huge sort of sorting phase is probably played out i think you saw big trading volumes and big price moves and that seems to have settled down and i think some of the obvious things um paid off very well at that time you know if you if you were smart enough to get out of travel get out of retail get out of leverage businesses you would have done very well and there was some very obvious buying opportunities as well and i I think for the most part, that's probably passed. Um, everything's much more nuanced now, I think. you know There's a lot of wreckage out there, and I think there'll be a huge amount of opportunities in, in that wreckage, but I think you need to think a lot harder and a lot more closely about what you're putting your money into with, with the price being um, a bit higher than, um, than the lows of, of yeah, March. It,
2: it was a bit indiscriminate at first, wasn't it? Um, whereas now, everyone's sort of kind of got their heads around um, what's likely to be impacted and... Uh, and and so it's it's just. I don't know. Was it indiscriminate?
0: Was- I actually think this sell-off. One of the things that has really differentiated um, this sell-off for me has been the relative rationality. I remember in the GFC, everything just got hit. Gold stocks mm. got smashed. Everything got hit massively. They're just a big liquidity um, uh, exit. And here, I- I've been hoping for that scenario. But look at the things that have been hit hard, and they're the things that you'd rationally expect. You know, retail. Um, anything to do with travel or moving people around. And in fact, um, there are lots of companies that have done well out of this whose share prices have actually risen, you know, stuff like Nix DC, um, Macquarie Telecom. Mm. Um, So I've been really surprised by the rationality uh, on display here. I yeah, suppose I'm
2: thinking of something like ordinate down at which got down to two fifty, I think, which seemed pretty indiscriminate to me. Not well, I don't
0: know. Really. I actually think that was that was a deserved target of selling because when you why? when you think about how their revenue works, right? They they only generate revenue when um their customers um you know place their chips uh, in the devices, and or for when that to happen, one, yeah. they need to sell a device. Um, yeah, but and you, but, then, and,
2: but they're hardly generating revenue at the moment, relative to what we, the relative to the valuation and what we sure. expect them to eventually. Oh, look, yeah. I mean, look, I suppose we could, we could. Um,
1: there, there know, are I a few know, interesting sure. things to drill into there with, with Ordinate in particular because, like as you say, the revenue model is akin to a royalty on AV equipment. That's right. Sales. Yeah, that's the way I get
0: to think about so, it. So, yeah.
1: you know, big installations are probably going to be deferred or there'll be far fewer of them in the next few years or so. But yeah. there's a number of offsetting factors as well. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't think the market's actually across these. Um, for instance, Zoom. So Ordinate recently partnered with Zoom um, and they'll be integrating Ordinate's technology for Zoom rooms. Um, and mm-hmm. Zoom's user base has just gone to 200 million, um, mm-hmm. and so that's potentially going to be a huge revenue source for Ordinate in the next few years. And I don't, I don't think many people are thinking about that at the moment, but mm-hmm. um, it's definitely something to think about.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a, very, it's a complete change in the thesis. I mean, I, I've been thinking a lot about Ordinate. It's a large position for me personally, and um, you know, for the, for AI, we've really gotten behind um, this business. That is not our traditional bread and butter, um, and uh, I think the big Audio installations, um, you know the stadiums, um, the concerts, uh, the, the venue revenue is that—that's probably going to be delayed for years. Uh, oh, do, do you think
2: so? I mean, I, yeah. I think that. Um, I mean, we're 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 banking on um revenues far in the future anyway. So the, at the mm, moment, yeah. the re- re- revenues are fairly low, and I think that we're. I mean, you know, hopefully there'll be a virus for this thing in a year. So how, I mean, how? I mean, okay, so there might be a, a recession, a depression, but but I mean, we're talking about the share price falling from nine dollars to two fifty. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, the valuation, um in my mind certainly didn't change anything like that. Um yeah, I I I think that in a year or two's time, um there'll be just as many installations going on. Disneyland is an interesting one because they've actually brought that forward. They're actually installing the new yeah, AV a system point. now yeah, um, yeah. because they, they've got no visitors. So it's a good time yeah. to do it. Yeah, no,
1: that's, a, that's a good point. When you also think of their competitive advantage as well, I mean, they are already very dominant in the core audio space. And hmm. I think it's quite likely that they won't even have competitors in a few years because yeah, those, this those is a really- ones are just going to be really struggling. But also is, with some of their new initiatives as well, because mm. with their video segments, the key thing for them to do now is to acquire OEMs to partner with. And mm. so if OEMs are not doing much and Ordinate's not doing much, you know, that's a that's a great time to actually win some partnerships and to build um, the penetration of, of that side of the business as well.
0: Yeah, I think I think that sort of second law order effect is where um, we need to be thinking. It's it's not just how is this business going to be impacted, it's how our competitors gonna be impacted. And I've been thinking that, about that a lot um, for things like Baby Bunting and um, Pacific Smiles, which is a sort of a property business we wrote up in, in an ideas lab a little while ago. Um, you know, the, the those businesses are going to be hit, but competitors arguably hit worse. Uh, and, and that's the sort of second order thinking I'm trying to um, deploy at the moment. Alex, there are um, I was thinking that there are a couple of ways small caps could go. I actually thought they may be more flexible in their response to coronavirus. Just anecdotally, I've been thinking about the way our own business has responded. I mean, sort of, we flipped the switch and everyone worked remotely very quickly um, and we've carried on without too much fuss at all. But talking to to colleagues and friends in um, different industries who work for larger businesses, they've really struggled to um, turn over to remote working um, and a whole new, you know, incorporating social distancing into their businesses. Is there a sense that, this might be a reset event that um, lowers competitive advantages and allows smaller companies to compete better than, um, than larger ones because of their flexibility?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's hard to generalise. I think,
0: generally speaking,
1: smaller companies are obviously more nimble. And so if you have a smaller p- footprint or you've, you've got fewer employees or fewer divisions, you can um, make faster decisions and you can act quickly. So that's obviously a huge benefit. There are some offsetting factors as well. Um, Probably the major one is access to capital. Um, You know, there's a huge number of businesses that are about to raise capital and investment Mm. bankers only have so much time and so they probably have to prioritise their best clients with the best assets and small companies probably... Oh,
0: you're being being very generous there, Alex. I don't think time is what's holding those guys back. I think it's the... Well, there's (laughs) only so
1: many resources at an investment bank to go around, you know, so they they prioritise the best and small companies get pushed to the back of the queue and so... Um, you know instead of raising money immediately they might raise money in a few months time and their yeah. situation might be much worse at, at that point point. Hmm. Um, and then obviously liquidity as well that's um, you know that's another factor a market-driven factor which impacts um, you know the share price the access to capital and things like that so I think it really depends on the business some can use this opportunity to be quite nimble and to you know boost their competitive positions but you really just need to assess it on a case-by-case basis.
0: Well, here at II, our buy list has exploded. I've I've said before, it's probably the longest I've seen it in maybe ten years. Um, how has your buying behavior changed? What have you picked up and added to the portfolio that might be of interest?
1: Yeah, um, so I guess in March I added four new positions to the portfolio and at a higher level my thinking was to focus on higher quality, more liquid positions initially. Um, Mm -hmm. And the thinking there was, obviously, this is an open ended fund that I'm running. So I need to consider liquidity where a a mom and pop investor might not need to think about that. Um, But obviously, when every name is marked down, I think you want to go for the best names you can. And I I also think that the more liquid positions are likely to recover faster because, you know, that's what people can actually buy. So that was the sort of the high-level thinking um, that I used in, in this first phase, and so some of the businesses that I bought will be very familiar to the II subscription base. Um, so Arbcorp was one, um, Altium was another that James has written up recently, um, Center Group, the owner of Westfield throughout Australia and New Zealand, mm-hmm. and um, Auckland Airport, which is New Zealand's gateway to the world. Um, mm-hmm. I would sort of I'd sort of think about them in two buckets. The, the first two, Altium and, and Corp. Um, very strong businesses, you've got owner managers in place, less likely to raise capital, you know, they've got very strong balance sheets and the revenue profiles there, there is um, reasonably strong Um, and then the other two, Auckland Airport and Centre Group, um, you know, they're asset heavy businesses, they've got lots of debt on the balance sheet and so capital raisings were a real risk and my strategy going into the latter two was to buy small positions, um, expecting a capital raising at some point and Hmm. Um, that played out for Auckland Airport. Initially bought a one percent position at I think four dollars twenty four, and then was able to participate in the placement at four fifty. So that that was um, quite a nice way to to build a position. That's um,
2: a great price for the four twenty four. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that was sort of
1: at the height of the of the panic, I think.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's a fascinating one, Auckland Airport, to me, because you know it came out. We, we all fear capital raisings because they, you know, for obvious reasons, they're dilutive and all that. Um, and in times like these you often have to set a big discount and all that sort of thing but Auckland airport came out um you know one one for 10 at a sort of 10% discount so you know you were looking at about a, a, a dilution of about 1% of the share price mm-hmm. um which was which was astonishing really and shows how strong um you know that bit, that, that asset is really and and how much people are prepared to back it
0: yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, competitively, it's it's hard to get more bulletproof than an airport, especially you know for a small nation like New Zealand, and for it to be the main gateway to the world. You know, it's you're not going to build a competing airport at at any stage. Um, but it shows, it
2: shows you don't, don't you don't need to fear a capital raising. Um, you know, as, as if, if it's a a high quality asset, then, you know, people will, will provide the capital if necessary.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. When I was buying it, everyone was already thinking about capital raisings. You know, if you were buying it in February, no one was really thinking about it. So it was, it was a, it was factored into the price for the most part. Um. But yeah, I've, I think it's it's a it's a strong business. Um, obviously, the the recovery profile is going to be quite nuanced from here. Though I think um, you know you'll probably see domestic travel um, come back um, perhaps in the next six months or so. But international travel is probably going to take much longer than that. And um, yeah, it's going to take it's going to take some time before a full recovery. But you know with that capital raising the the risk of any um debt um covenant breaches or things like that is is largely off the table for at least the next two years
2: internationals the more um uh important source of revenue or or the more important passengers it contributes disproportionately to profit doesn't it because they spend longer in the um, in the terminals is that right that's the case of sydney
1: airport isn't it? yeah that's right they're a higher proportion of the travelers and they're more valuable as well so they make up a, a much bigger percentage of the profit than compared to sydney airport for example i think it's about 55 percent of the passengers are international um, right. obviously the just domestic economy in new zealand's much smaller as well so um so yeah that's that means it's more exposed to international travel and so it's it's it'll be a longer um recovery profile there um but you know it's been marked down so much, um, I think that's more than more than adequately um, compensated for in the price. So it's, it's and, a risk it, going to take.
2: It also has that property development side that people talk about a lot, which Sydney Airport doesn't so much have. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Because Auckland Airport's unique in that it actually owns the airport and it also has 1,500 hectares of developable land as well. Um, so the difference with Sydney Airport is that they have a, an 80-year concession and so they actually have to repurchase the right to keep operating the airport um, once that's finished. Auckland Airport doesn't have to do that, so it has slightly higher margins, and I think it's um, a overall lower risk profile as a result because you actually own the land and um, the, the debt concerns are, are not as great when you have that ownership. So, um, mm. so yeah, I think so it's I um, quite an important qualitative um, differentiator.
0: So I bought Auckland over sydney as well um and for me one of the attractive things about auckland is um it's just the the growth profile so that that property ownership just confers on you so much optionality to grow so and and auckland is fully aware of this and they're exploiting it beautifully they've got um plans in place to um you know to triple their regulated asset base over the next 10 years and they've outlined plans to build um you know hotels distribution centers there's a whole host of um activity that that the the airport funds that earn really high returns on capital and that that um you can do that for years and years and years uh, and they're nowhere near monetizing the airport to the extent that sydney has already done so they're starting from um a, starting from a lower starting point um, to sydney and, and i think the optionality to grow is far greater than sydney as well so it's to me it's quite attractive um and uh, I, I can see why you'd choose that. But did the, the fact that it was New Zealand and kind of rang home have any bearing on it at all? <laughs> uh, I I don't think so. Um, maybe somewhere in my head. You never know. That was the case. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, at
1: the time when I look at them, I, I keep a little journal of the stocks that I buy. And, you know, it was all about the fact that, as you've just said, you know, the, the regulated asset base is going to grow really quickly. They've got huge development potential like it's hard to actually comprehend how large 1500 hectares is like yeah, yeah. it's much bigger than the Auckland CBD so this is going to So be how big. much
2: of they how much have they already developed of that uh, or, or is that all the undeveloped stuff um, and so what 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 sort of proportion of the total land has been developed
0: um it's only a, it's on, a fraction from what yeah, I yeah only
1: only a small amount so it's largely okay. the airport and then sort of the surrounding area you know they've got a few hotels in place There's some logistic assets but the vast majority of that is undeveloped, so this is this is decades of development potential essentially,
0: and it's valuable development. So they're talking about um, building, um, uh, you know, a, a, a integrated logistics and distribution hub at the airport, and it reminds me a bit of um, what Cube is trying to do at at Moorbank. and yeah, and yet Auckland is doing this right at the airport, and they're in control of it. So it's almost a combination. Um, the way I thought about Auckland a little bit, it's it's a combination of sort of Cube and Sydney Airport. If they're both together in one spot, um, and you can even add hotels on top of that as well, since they're developing hotels. Um, and the, you know, sorry to go on and on about it, but the the <laughs> I think the the regulatory asset base um, is is really important here. The Sydney Airport um, earns a lot of money from its non-regulated um, assets, uh, whereas Auckland the RAB is a lot larger and it's growing quite swiftly, and that to me t- t- just confers a lot more stability on that airport. Um, yep. it, it's less of a sort of a retail exposed um, asset than Sydney is.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so both revenue streams have lots of growth potential for a long time. So yeah,
2: well, geez, the um, as I think I mentioned last week on the podcast, I, I went and bought both of these, and then uh, decided that two was too many, so I sold Auckland. I've, I've, you're making me think I got the wrong one.
0: <laughs> well. <laughs> Um, Graham, who's the analyst, um, he goes the other way. He's made every time I talk to Graham, I think oh, I've got the wrong one because he's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think they're <laughs> both really knowledgeable good. about yeah, Sydney. Right. And... I think
2: that yeah, I think they're both very good businesses. Yeah, they're I think cool. that's the truth. They're both really good they, businesses. They have slight differences, yeah. don't Which is interesting. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Auckland's slightly more expensive in terms of yield. I think isn't it? the capex profile is
0: much is much larger there. It's higher, so they don't yeah, pay as yeah. much out in yield. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but so I'd argue uh, though, that the ownership yeah. of the land means it should be more valuable. Like if the two businesses had the same cash flows, mm. yeah, Auckland Airport should be more valuable as a result of owning the land.
2: Yeah, and I think that Sydney Airport, um, for an 80-year lease compared to a freehold, I think you, um, I mean, the, you know, surveyors sort of produce some charts of all this, but um, I, I think... Uh, that's a, you'd look for about a fifteen percent discount for that, I think. So yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, that's
1: what I mean. Owning the land, you yeah. know, you don't have to buy that concession again. And yeah, right. That yeah. into the DCF, yeah. it's a it's a reasonable yeah. impact over a long period of time. Yeah, that well, matters. It, it's
2: more, all the more so actually, where you got some debt because Sydney Airport essentially has to spend its last ten years of or whatever <laughs> its last few years of, of earning, not paying any distribution at all, but just paying off that debt.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Alex what else have you been do you want to pick one more stock or or JC do you want to um, do you want to pick one for him and we can we can force Alex to talk about it a bit
2: oh well I'd I'd love to hear what he has to say about Center Group Uh, you know that that's one which we had a buy on a little while ago around the four dollar mark and then kind of changed our minds Mickey uh, was was the one who sort of convinced me about that. Um he's been quite negative about shopping centres. But mm-hmm. of course, uh, you know, that I think he, he had to sell it sort of above three fifty or something. I mean we're we're half that. Or we w- were half that. We're a little um it's bounced a bit, hasn't it? But um well, yeah, why don't, why don't you do Alex?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean I don't think this business is necessarily in my normal wheelhouse. I think what, similar to my comments earlier about in crises you can do really obvious things. Like to me this was just uh, a set of very good retail assets, probably Australia's best, really well located in communities. It was trading at 30% of book value at the time I looked at it. Um, the trailing dividend yield was 16%. So, so those quantitative factors um, were obviously just screaming either huge problems or huge value. Um, and just when you run through all the scenarios about how they would work themselves out of that situation, you know, perhaps um, they would have to. Well, they wouldn't receive any money from tenants, and so they'd have to um, either just write that off or get that repaid over a long period of time. And then the debt pile that they did have, um, you know, maybe they could just capitalise the interest there and, and repay that in the future, or just just keep paying that. And and, and what would all those scenarios look like? It, to me, there was just such a huge margin of safety that I was I, I was willing to take that risk. And for such a, a big asset that's likely to get access to capital, I just thought that. Um, I thought that was a mispriced risk, essentially. And, um, so I, I don't think I have any special view about the asset itself. Um, you know, I think, I think the internet is going to slowly erode the relevance of shopping centres, um, probably less, um, less slowly than some other people think. Um, but I just think these are, these are just good shopping centres that were just extraordinarily cheap at the time.
2: So, so, so those valuation measures you mentioned were quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, that tells me you must have bought it at a very cheap price. So what was so it go on? What what price did you pay? Uh, can dollar... you can you tell us that? Yeah, you sure. I a dollar. Yeah, yeah, I got a
1: dollar fifty, which was dollar fifty. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah. So it was about a the Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's a that's a great buy. Yeah. It's still yeah.
0: trading at only two bucks. Like I still think it's this is quite an interesting thing, and and I think Mickey's looking at it at the moment, but. Um, uh he's not like these for a long time and and one, one of the um arguments that the bears and I should say they actually own um center group as well i've I've bought a um a small stake and I'm actually in there for the cap raising mostly. I think there's likely going to be one, but um even without they this is still kind of interesting so the, the bears on center group say that an event like this accelerates um things that are already going on and clearly. Um, center group, even before all this was was struggling with its um its tenancy. Um, there's a lot of retailers who recognize that the cream of um of the profit in the entire retail sector doesn't go to retailers. it goes to the property owners. And that balance of power is surely now more likely to change um, even than it was before, and it was changing before. So uh, th- th- I think, this, the idea that rents just go back to being what they were in, you know, two years ago in um, two years' time is, is fanciful. I think the rents are probably permanently going to be lower from here. But even if you factor that in, like the, the prices are just quite attractive for, for me. So I concur, yeah. Alex, I think it's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, that's um, right. I actually went to a Westfield, my local Westfield, um, on the weekend I think it was, and I was amazed at how busy the place was and how many shops yeah. were actually opened. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I was actually amazed, you know, there was uh, just an extraordinary number of shops operating. Um,
0: and we forget that this is, this is not just a shopping centre. It's a, it's a, the way I thought about it, it's just a well-located piece of property and you can really put a lot of stuff in there. It doesn't have to be um, struggling retail stores and, and Westfield has been doing this. One of the things that has really impressed me about Westfield um, above almost any other re- um, shopping centre owner in the world is how quickly they've um, turned over um, the, uh, the the tenant base. Uh, you go in there now, and the food areas are just enormously expanded. There's so many services: there's doctor surgeries, dental surgeries, cinemas, uh, and restaurants galore. Um, mm. And and you can see that um, they're able to monetize what is a a well located piece of property um, better than anyone else in the world. I think um, this is this is a a truly great business and. Yeah, well, we're trying to get, I mean, Mickey's here all the time trying to tell him about it, but <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the bear argument, I think is equally as compelling. And um, for me, it's still pretty high risk.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is almost a special situation for me. Um, yeah. That's
0: like an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, okay. Right.
1: Yeah. Cause I, I don't think ordinarily I would be looking at a business like this, but in a crisis, yes. I'm happy to. Um, right. And it was really the pricing of it that brought me to it, and and obviously like these are the best malls in Australia, I think quite clearly, you know. So they're probably last in line for all of you know the destructions of the industry that's likely to take place due to you know higher internet sales and things like that. So um, yeah, I just think that they're they're just more resilient than the markets giving credit for.
0: What's difficult about um, Center Group? I find it hard to to think about when I'd sell. Um, so I, you know, I even for my personal portfolio, I kind of write little notes about what what I'm doing. And for my when I'd sell, I just left it blank because I don't do not know when I would sell this. Um, yeah, you're right. This is a, a, a special situation. Is probably the right way to think about it. You'd,
2: you'd, of, you'd have a price in mind, there, wouldn't you? I mean, uh, that—that's the thing. I suppose you—you yeah. you, you, with, with a special situation like this, you've got to have you've a right. price. It's not yeah. not something where you go in and think, "Look, I just think it's a fabulous business. We'll want to earn it forever?"
0: Well, I think this um, is why. Um, this is why uh, it's hard to. Um, yeah, you know, to to put a buy on it, to be honest, because it's the thesis is really difficult to formulate. It, it it's one that um I just bought almost on a whim, thinking, oh, this is cheap, but it's not really a very good investment thesis. Just to say, oh, it's it's cheap, you know. a
1: I think you know, with a publication business, I appreciate that you need to be able to articulate your views in a very um, digestible and intelligent way, but then, but during a crisis, you know, I think you should have the freedom to say this is just cheap and it makes sense to buy it. We're going to make money, you know. I think. Well, I think
2: that's sorry. Go on.
1: Yeah, I think you can communicate that. Um, just, just going back to the the question about when to sell these things. Like for me, I sort of going through a crisis. I sort of think about it in phases, and that first phase is that sorting period where everyone's just rushing to change their portfolios in response mm. to the new information, and. Quality liquid assets are really good at that time because you can quickly sell them if you need to. And so, so for something like Centre, um, if you can buy it cheaply and then um, make some money on it, you always have that option of replacing it with something. And so that next phase of then sifting through the wreckage and trying to find something attractive again is, is probably going to be what leads me to sell Centre Group. Once I find a, a better um, alternative for the portfolio, I that, that'll be when I'll rotate out of
0: Centre. JC what do you think about Centre? have you been tempted by it at all
2: Yeah I've been tempted um I think there probably is a capital raising coming and so that puts me off but rather like you know I that was my concerns about that was before Auckland airport Auckland airport's changed my thinking about that a bit because mm. it ha- has just shown that how easy it is for some of these um uh companies you know with good assets to get the money if they want mm. Um, and the thing with centre is that if you if you're talking about rental yields of you know four percent or whatever it is, um, you know you lose one year's earnings, one year's rent, and that just pushes your gearing up by four percent, doesn't it? Um, so you know it, one year one year of rent for something like this is is actually a pretty small it's a pretty small bit. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm attracted by it, but I think that it probably will have to, I say it's more beer, but it probably just takes them to the point where they, um, where they need to raise some money. And uh, I mean, I suspect there's also cash flows or, or EBITDA uh, covenants, aren't there? So probably mm. it's, you know, the longer this goes on, the more likely because those have dates where, you know, so they might be okay on that for this six months, but not for the July to December six months. So it depends how long this goes on. Um so I don't know it's 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 a difficult one I've been looking at it and dithering I suppose uh, yeah. I I mean I would say that it came it was on my list I came reasonably close to buying it but I I suppose it was in the same batch as the airports and I and I opted for them instead I suppose
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think yeah. the recovery profile for this business is a lot clearer than Auckland Airport, at least, and, and many yeah. other businesses as well, because it's mm. a domestically exposed business. So once these mm. lockdown restrictions are tapered back, you know we're all going to be back at shopping centres, and um, the picture clears up much faster than some other businesses. Well, that's yeah, interesting. and I think I, I think the to... thing with
2: with with sorry, um, I'll go, go sure. ahead, go ahead, Jason, the, yeah. Go ahead. Um, the, the thing about shopping centres, which we which we've said before, was part of our um, uh, buy. Uh, um, Recommendation on Center Group a couple of years ago, and that is that the high quality ones really do have a much better position than the lower quality mm. ones because, you know, even with with retail moving online, a lot of businesses, uh, you know, they need a showroom essentially for their for their products. So Apple mm. has has the the Apple Store where you can go and touch and feel the products. Um, Tesla, um, you know, there are numerous examples of of companies that actually will still need that sort of, it, it's that marketplace, isn't it? It's the Roman forum. It's the where where you are, where you have that asset right in the middle of town, you, mm. there's an awful lot you can mm. do with it out on the, you know, out in the burbs, um, n- uh, you know, not so much, but that's why, you know, center group, I, I, I do find it quite attractive. Whereas I wouldn't go near, um, uh, some of the, you know, less well located, uh, retail yeah. probably trust.
0: No, I agree. Um, the, the two points um, I wanted to make um, in addition was, was one that the experience of China coming out of lockdown is that recovery seems to be a lot slower. Um, people, even though new cases and all is, is quite low, people are very scared to gather and shopping has, has not returned anywhere near to, it, um, to its peak. So shopping in restaurants, um, not quite the same as it was before. I don't know what that tells us about the Australian experience, but probably not a good thing.
2: Well, we're still um, in the midst of the pandemic though, aren't we? I mean, yeah. so the point it, is that in a year, I mean, it depends on what time, time scale you're looking at, I guess. Well,
0: mm-hmm. but for, for China, is probably, is probably a couple of months ahead. So what they do is probably instructive about what happens here. If, you know, if, if human behavior is uniform, which... Yeah, I, I mean, that's what moves, gets us it, through. Yeah. To uh,
2: That's what means it's six months or a year rather than, yeah, it's certainly not going to be two or three months impact for, yeah. for a lot of these people, yeah.
0: But yeah. there, there's also these big structural problems that center faces. I mean, um, Premier Group has just said to center group, we're not paying our rent. What are you going to do about it? Um, you know, they just said outright. And there's a couple of others who are now saying, we're not going to pay our rent. And I, I think that that goes to the, the point that this business was probably over-earning in the past. And I don't think it's going to go back to earning those old um, those old rents again. It, yeah. It's just taking too much of the, of the retail pie. Yeah, it's be a there's statement.
1: only a small number of retailers that have the ability and have the guts to actually say a statement like that. Like, obviously, Solly Lowe is willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're big enough, you can actually get away with it when you can um, inflict some serious damage on the landlord. Um, mm-hmm. But smaller retailers, I don't think they're in any position to make a statement like that. And, you know, that's the vast majority of centres, tenants and um, earnings power as well. So I think, you know, you'll probably see some big, um, big um, retailers play argy bargy, but I don't think that would be the general experience across the board. And um, and still, even when you factor that in, I think um, you can still make sense of the valuation.
2: But if you, if yeah, um I think that's true. Yeah. If you're a premier and you've closed your store, let's say, I don't know which sort of its stores it's closed, but if you close your store, there's no point paying rent for the next six months or a year, um, just so that you can open it up in the same spot. And you know, these, these things are fluid. So you, you would, you'd stop paying rent. Um, mm. But I also think you'd be there knocking on the door in a year's time, desperate for them to let you back in and, and with other people competing for that space. So I, I think the rents will come back better than people imagine. Yeah. Um, In the in the quality uh, shopping centres,
1: yeah. And let's say you own centre and and Solilo comes to your door again and wants to rent from you. You know, are you going to give him the same terms as you once did? I mean, for me, I'd be thinking you you have to pay more. You know, you're back at the queue. Who
2: else is knocking on the door, doesn't it? I mean, that's so it's it's going to come down to competition for that space. Uh, which is exactly, how, and that's what how, that's the Westfield playbook, isn't it? They've they've managed that beautifully for years. And mm-hmm. you know, while the, if the demand's there, and I agree with Gorav, you know, it's going to take a few months, um, maybe a year or two to recover. But you know, when you're valuing assets on yields of four percent or something, you know, that a, a year or two of, of of rent is actually not the bigger picture when you're talking about the asset value half. I mean, or the market value of this asset um, has halved.
0: Um, JC, do you want to to grill Alex on any other small caps or shall we go on to a not so small cap?
2: Oh, look, uh, uh, that was very, (laughs) very... (laughs) which one are you talking about? Um, I'd love to hear just quickly what he wants to uh, say about Altium.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, well, I I don't know if I have any different opinion to you, James. This is obviously a a great business, Um, very strongly capitalized. It's got lots of visibility in its revenue streams with the subscription model. Um, It does have some one-off revenue as well, and and that may suffer more than subscriptions in the near term. Um, But the main attraction here is just the competitive position and just the long-term roadmap for the business. Um, It's been a business that I've followed for a while and have wanted to own and So um, when I saw it sell off, it was one of the first on my list to have a close look and think about. Um, So, you know, what's going to happen over the next few years, it's probably, um, you know, many customers are small businesses and so you might see higher levels of churn. um, Perhaps subscription growth will slow a lot. Um, That's probably to be expected. Um, You know, so you might see earnings slow quite considerably in the near term. but when you're buying a business like this, you're not really thinking about the next few, few years. It's really about what this business looks like in five to 10 years' time. And you know, I don't, I don't think that coronavirus is going to slow their trajectory at all. I think it's it's going to get stronger over time. They're going to keep innovating and improving the product. And it's going to be the logical choice for many users. And I mean, one of the main assets they have is that human capital where people learn to use the software and become familiar with it and become really reluctant to change. and you know, that's a tremendous asset and that doesn't change quickly. And, you know, that's that's probably one of the main attractions here. So I don't think any of that is any different to your opinions on it, Jane James, unless I'm mistaken.
2: No, no, that's right. And, and I suppose, you know, so there might be a bit of bit of slowing over the next few years and things might be pushed out and all all, all of that. Um, But you were getting a, a, at one point, I think, as much of a 40% discount on the share price compared to where it was in um Uh, February, anyway. So, um, uh, you know, I think that's the thing with these big sell-offs: is people see problems, um, but the the impact on the the you know share prices of some of these quality stocks can be quite disproportionate.
0: JC, you wrote about a recent IPO recently, and on first glance, this business has a heap of red flags all over it. So it's it's Dublin based; it listed in Australia at the peak of the software boom, and it is a software SaaS business. So to me, I don't even need to know any more than that. I just think um, dodgy overseas company that's come here to take advantage of very high prices and collect capital for a business model that desperately needs capital. And for me, I wouldn't have even looked at this. Um, Having read your review afterwards, I thought, wow, this sounds like a really decent business, actually, really interesting. So tell us why you started looking at Phineos in the first place, and how you um, how you deal with those tensions, the the dubious um, listing circumstances against what appears to be quite a decent quality business?
2: um well, I first started looking at it because Nathan told me to essentially <laughs> 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 because I, he came across it. I think I'm not quite sure. I think it might be in um. Yeah, look, I'm not quite sure. He came across it. He he um he asked me to have a look at it. Um, so I got into it. Um, and like you, the first thing I noticed is that this is a Dublin-based business. And I'm always a little bit skeptical about companies well, that
0: I got it from you, JC. I, yeah. <laughs> I learned that lesson from you. I think, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I liken it to to you know Texan oil fields. You know, yeah, so that's the analogy used to get me as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if there's any decent ones, they don't they don't sell them to us. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a bit, the, the justification that management uses for selling it over here or floating it over here is that it wants to raise its profile in this neck of the woods. Um, that and seems dubious to me, really. Does. Do you think so? I, yeah, look, I, I, I don't do. know. I, I, it's important not to be too skeptical. Um, yeah. and, and the, yeah. and the, um, founder CEO has retained something like 70 something percent of the company. Yeah. So yeah. I mean he's also um you know sold sold a decent chunk so he's made some money out of it but um look he's he's retained a large holding himself so I don't think um uh you know I, I don't think one could be too cynical of that but I, so no, I, look no. I was looking at it and eventually I you know there's there's a big problem with with a company like this which is that we can't really test its product very well no. um and you know, when, when the valuation is sky high, it's not really due to making any profits for, um, well not significant profits for, for, um, a little while. Uh, so you, you've got a, um, a sky high valuation, you've got a few red flags. Um, and so, but, but yet the underlying business is quite attractive. So I wanted to try to, um, flesh out some of the details of the underlying business, um, and explain why. So just think think what you, what you like about
0: it. I mean, well it it's just tell got, us some of the the quality that that you quite like about it
2: well it's got a it's it's, it's not got a huge market share in the, so it sells um software to help uh, life um health and accident uh, insurers um manage their businesses essentially um started, it, it originated with claim software and it's expanded into all sorts of other areas for them um and these are areas which are mostly being done sort of in-house at the moment. Um, or by large uh, software companies that don't really specialize in this area, so it, it's it's ripe for a company like this um, uh, to do it much better. Um, and the signs are, are positive; it's been winning a lot of business. It's it's increasing its uh, market share. It's there. Um, so so you know there there is a lot to like about it. But as I explained in the, the review, um, it's important I think not to get too carried away with it because you know unlike um, Uh, So I made the comparison with Xero. And unlike Xero, it's got a very small customer base. And those are very big, powerful customers. Um, And it gets a lot more of its revenue from services, which is uh, a much more volatile source of revenue, can disappear in a whim. Um, And you might think that might happen over the next year or two. But uh, although the signs are, are reasonably good on that at the moment um but the most important thing is probably scalability um so it it requires a much more sort of tailored approach it it its software needs to be tweaked uh, more and that's hence the services' revenue um it needs to be tweaked more for individual customers uh whereas zero just rolls it out so for zero it's all about sort of marketing um the the well it does a lot of r and d as well zero but um it gets to spread that over thousands of customers mm-hmm. um whereas phineas is is um you know, tweaking it more so the so zero scales much better. It can grow much quicker, makes potentially better margins, um, and so all of that. It's an interesting thing because when you actually look at the valuation in terms of multiples of revenue, zero is uh, valued about three times as high. But that's mm. a multiple of revenue, you see. And when you pair that back to you know because of what you think the likely EBITDA margins and things like that um uh and zero grow much quicker i think it's it's um it's worth that so it's it's a tough one Phineos. It's an interesting company one to keep an eye on, but um just doesn't quite have that sort of x factor that you need for such a crazy well not not yeah high valuation
0: Alex, have you come across Phineos at all? what are your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, I have had a brief look i i think i agree with james's assessment um you know, it's, this is a traditional software business, so it doesn't have the scalability and, you know, the, the big recurring revenue base of a, a SaaS-based business like Xero. I've, a, I've actually had a realization recently, I've sort of changed my thinking about these traditional software businesses, and um, I was looking at Hanson and Gentrack, and this is what brought me to this line of thinking, and if you look at Gentrack in particular, um, once used to make really great profits, was really highly valued on those profits, and that was largely driven by the one-off revenue that the business was generating at the time. And investors often get excited about the recurring revenue of these businesses, but it's really the one-off revenue that drives their profitability. And so I think the time that you should get excited about them is when you're really optimistic about the one-off revenue. And when I look at a business like Phineos, you know, they have listed in a, in a foreign country, and, and the one-off revenue is a really high proportion of their total revenue. It just makes me think that maybe they've had a good year and they've used that large one-off revenue to get a good um, selling multiple into the market. And you know, it's hard to have a lot of confidence in, in the outlook for that when we don't know the business very well at all. So, I'd, I'd be inclined to wait until that one-off revenue has goes through a tough period, when the market you know gets upset with the business and has a low multiple, and, and to reassess it then. Because with a new business, we haven't seen it for a long time, and you know, who who knows if there's any skeletons in the closet. Um, you know, there's lots of businesses that are cheap, so it kind of makes sense to to focus on the lowest risk ones at this time.
2: I think that's an important point, which you know, that you, you don't have to buy every business, you know, you, you can miss out on some businesses that even if they do really well, you don't have to invest in all in all the best performers to do well. You you know, you've got to pick and choose and um, you know, it's uh uh you know, what what is it, Warren Buffett? calls it the fat pitch um and i think phineas is definitely not a
1: fat pitch
0: yeah that's right what would you need to see james to get um to get into an ipo because we i don't think i don't recall us ever really recommending an ipo it's really rare for us to do so um it really this one in particular um, you know, we've talked about those flags already, but they really concern me, and it'd have to be something exceptional for me to override all those concerns.
2: Yeah, that's a um, that's a great question. Actually, I, I think um, the main so it would need to have a good reason for floating. Yeah, I think, and that's it right. would need to have the fa- it would need to be not being sold by flight private equity. I mean, these mm-hmm. are ideal. Look, I mean, everything's the same situation, but um, for for a float to look really attractive, you want the founder to be staying on board with a large shareholding um and you want a, you know a good reason for moving to the next level we need to raise a bunch of capital uh, i'm not selling any shares but we're raising a bunch of capital because we want to do this with our product uh, yep. which has got a brilliant market share in this area and we're going mm. to take it into this area mm. um and uh so if anyone knows of any of those then send them in
1: yeah <laughs> i I participated in a float last year which was a, a port in new zealand um small town new zealand oh yes you know, so right. that's that's a government seller there. So they've got a whole different set of incentives, you know, largely to yep. get reelected and to make sure that oh, that's a good one. Yeah. people that that's buy a good the one. float um, make money. And also yeah. you know, in, in um, private hands, you'd think the business could be run a bit more efficiently. So maybe there's some benefits um, once it sets off on that listed journey. So something like that, I think you can, you can make sense of. And, you know, history suggests that government assets have been quite good floats.
0: Yep. Yeah, no, they're they're both excellent suggestions. JC, I completely concur. The only reason I would buy a non-government float is, is um, they have there's a business with a, um, with a project opportunity and they need cash to fund it, and so they're coming to market to raise equity to fund a specific, um, project or for a specific purpose. Uh, yeah, all other IPOs just just make me very suspicious because there's such a big information gap, and the seller's always smarter than the buyer. And the books always look very good before the float. And yep. so we ought to be very suspicious about it.
1: I think it makes sense to look at them though, because, you know, Ordinate listed not too long ago. and If you yep. looked through the prospectus of that, you would have appreciated the quality of the business and you'd be intrigued to look further. So it always makes sense no, to have, have a quick read. So I, I suppose
2: that had some of the elements that we're talking about, although the founders had sort of sold, you know, sold sold out or sold on. They've still got reasonable stakes, but um, you know, uh, but they but they were looking to take the technology to to a new level, you know, into video and things like that. So there there was. There was reason um, for them to to raise the capital. Um, And with
1: one of the most important customers being a shareholder as well, that's quite a strong validation of the business and the the product. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's a good point.
0: And the great thing about prospectuses is I don't think you'll ever find another single document that gives you as much information about a business as a prospectus, So for that reason alone, it's worth going through some of these just to learn. Yeah, about but
2: particularly, the about the, particularly about the industry. I think it's, yes. it's a really good sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, it, it contains a lot of, they, they tend to contain a lot of information, which is quite hard to find um, on the industry. Of course, you've got to take some of it with a pinch of salt as far as the individual business is concerned.
0: So I recently looked at um, a IPO called Carbon Revolution, and I wrote this up as an ideas lab. And... Um, this was a company that has been the first in the world to um, commercialise the um, industrial-scale production of carbon fibre wheels. Uh, and you might think that's no big deal, but carbon fibre wheels, for a host of reasons I mentioned in the article, are, are a, um, a really attractive addition for some cars. Um, they lighter, stronger, and so you can you can um, spin the wheel faster. So you can actually increase performance of the vehicle, but also um, it reduces weight, and I think this, the fuel consumption saving was about 4% or so, which is very similar to some of the new technologies that have been added to cars at much greater expense than, than carbon fiber development. And I thought that was a really interesting concept, really interesting business, um, not so much for the wheels, but because this was the, the comp- a company that had uh, in, had uh, learned how to build industrial quantities of carbon fiber. And once you've learned how to do that, you can apply carbon fiber construction methods to all sorts of different uh, markets and industries and they just but starting off with wheels but i thought the opportunity was much wider than that um, and i still think this is a quite interesting little business um, i haven't bought it and um, we can't really recommend it because it looked crazy cheap crazy expensive at the time it's come back a long way but it's still sitting on my radar and i think that's one ipo that i'm going to be following for a little while alex any interesting ipos or any other interesting ipos on your agenda no, no, not at
1: this stage. I think um, IPOs would be at the back of the queue for me when the market's really cheap, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and unless they were had some extraordinary features, I, I probably wouldn't spend much, if any, time on them.
0: Hmm. I feel as though we need a special effects inserted right here because I upgraded a stock that I never thought I'd upgrade. I actually don't even like this business very much at all and no one was more shocked than me when I upgraded and. That's where we're going to have our special effect, Ta-da, or some drum roll. You need a drum, drum roll. That's a Actually, it's more of a, a, a <laughs> sort of a, a doom sound um, because it's a <laughs> it's Telstra. We we upgraded Telstra, which um, it, you know I've been scathing of this business for for years, and um, I really there's so much um, in terms of culture that this business does wrong. I think it's really slow. Um, it's it's at times too aggressive, and other times not aggressive enough. It's the very epitome of institutional bureaucratic behavior. It's never nimble. I, it makes so many strategic errors, and I'd argue that there's been no worse I'd argue that there hasn't been a worse capital allocator in the top twenty than Telstra. Um It's just got an awful record. When yet, was the
2: original flow? When was it? Was it, it was sort of like early nineties? Ninety-seven was wasn't that T two? Or was that T like, two? Was it? Okay, maybe it was. Old, T2, but, yeah. but I mean, it's it, it's really interesting. I think how long that bureaucracy and you know can last in a in a company. Do you know what I mean? It's sold out of the, um, you know, it's sold into the private sector, and how long that public sector sort of bureaucracy can stay
0: with. It. The big problem for them really has always been that they've had. Um, They've been granted a couple of um, monopolies that they have not been able to let go of. And it reminds me it me a bit of um, uh, Windows and Microsoft. You know, Microsoft milked money out of Windows for a long time. And even when Windows was in decline, it still clung to Windows as a centerpiece of its business until the new CEO came around. And the first thing he did was he said that we are not Windows business anymore. And he kind of shunted Windows... From the from the business and then they pivoted into cloud and a whole host of other things and microsoft is now a darling and a great success story well telstra, so I suppose, is, sorry, I go. telstra is microsoft before the pivot it's just clinging on to these old um, monopoly revenues and it has been doing for a long time but i think the pivot might be coming um jc i I,
2: I was just gonna say i suppose that it's that monopoly it's that huge um business strength that um perhaps breeds the complacency and so that's what sort of feeds the bureaucracy that's perhaps why it's not sort of had to there's been no forced change until now
0: yeah um i completely agree yeah and i'm not sure there has been a i don't know what's forced the change but there has been a change and it may be the that the um that the nbn has kind of ripped away their uh their copper monopoly and um, their broadband revenues have been completely decimated because they're now a reseller of broadband rather than uh, an owner of broadband assets so their margin profile has completely changed it's halved basically and um, we've got a lot more competition mobile so the revenues are under pressure their margins have have fallen a long way from their peaks so i guess they've been forced to respond and the response is actually quite a good one so what they've done is that they've Separated inside Telstra, all their their kind of infrastructure, physical um, asset businesses into one new business called InfraCo, and InfraCo holds um, the exchanges that Telstra owns, the um, the ducts, um, the data centers, um, and then also very recently, Telstra rolled um, their uh, their fiber backhaul, which is you know when you have mobile towers there's actually a, a a fiber network that connects those towers together and when you make um you know when you make calls it often goes through the towers with microwaves but when you're downloading data it often gets routed through the um the the fiber so the fiber is is a really important part of making a mobile network work especially a data centric one so these a great valuable irreplaceable assets and then on top of that you've got the um, masts the towers that the actual microwave equipment for, that make mobile networks work. And all that's being separated into a new business in, inside Telstra. Um, and I think they have no one's actually said this, but the only reason you would do that. The only reason is to is would that you'd create a functional separation is because at some point you want to create a formal separation. So I think this is the first step into a, a full um, split of Telstra and I think that would just release a whole lot of value. I talked about in the article why that might work. be the case. Yes.
1: InfoCo, does it have external customers and could it ever have external customers or would it always just be the, the other Telstra divisions that would use those assets?
0: Yeah, no. That, I think the big upside for them is that they potentially can have external customers. Um, so the at the moment, the NBN... Um, and other people lease a lot of equipment on infraco asset, Infra assets. <laughs> um, exchanges and ducks get leased already. But the mobile assets, which I think are um, are a big part of the upside here, are actually for Telstra only. And if they do get separated, there's a decent chance that um, the new business will be able to um, add revenue onto those assets by asset sharing. Uh, this has actually happened overseas. I wrote an article um, uh, late, uh, early last year, I think, about um, how, you know, the hidden asset inside Telstra is its is its tower network. And, um, you know, American Tower and Crown Castle are two businesses that have, that have had um, towers separated and, and separately listed. And those things have just gone gangbusters. Because once you have a tower active, um, you can actually have uh, sort of three or four different networks operating from the same tower site. And the owner of the tower becomes effectively, um, you know, a monopoly um, property business. Uh, it just makes no sense for you to replicate the tower once the tower is already there. Um, and they can end really high rates of return. Um, in fact, they are making really high rates of return. I think there are opportunities now available to InfraCrow um, post the split. Um, it, you know, a lot has to happen before before we get there, but the potential is is now laid out and. I think we have to get in a bit early. I, you know, traditionally we'd probably, as we have done for things like RainCorp and Iluca, we've kind of waited for the split to happen and then looked at those spinoffs. I think it's going to be too late if we do that for Telstra because it's a remarkably attractive asset. So um, I, I reckon now is the time to actually go into Telstra, um, and you're in there for the for the split. Mm. Now the sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the infrastructure business is attractive and will be even more attractive as a standalone business. And there's there's ample opportunity to lift revenue there. But the split actually also improves the the legacy Telstra business, the mobile and broadband business. The biggest problem with Telstra Mobile is that they are saddled with stupidly high um, dividend payout ratios. And it's really held the business back um, because shareholders have demanded these, these crazy dividends. And what they can do now is they can, um, we, with a spin-off, they can satisfy their dividend-hungry investors with InfraCo and the mobile business can be free then to reinvest and be far more aggressive um, against its rivals. And they've now got a, for the first time, they've got a decent rival in TPG Vodafone. So they'll need to be aggressive and the split allows them to do so. So I think it's it's actually a decent opportunity from here. And, and I think the downside the upside is is quite unknown and it may not even happen you know perhaps Telstra just wants to show the market look we've got these infrastructure assets go value them um, and maybe they're not even they're not even interested in a proper split perhaps but um, if they are then I think there's tremendous upside and if they're not well I, I don't think there's uh, there's a there's a whole lot to lose and so I think on a risk reward this actually starts looking quite attractive I never thought I'd, I'd be upgrading Telstra and yet here we are
1: just a quick question, Grove. Oftentimes, um, the people are a great qualitative indicator of, you know, a good business. Um, the people that have been appointed to run InfraCo, are they yeah. would you say that they're the cream of the Telstra
0: crop? Well, so far, um, we haven't given um, too much information about that. Um, the company is going to give an additional update. I think it's in June or July this year, where they. Um, where they give a breakdown of the assets inside InfraCo and, and presumably a bit more information about who's um, going to be heading it and who's um, you know who's going to be inside that business. So I think that's going to be quite instructive. Um, and again, I wanted to get in, into Telstra ahead of that. I think sometimes you can, if you wait for too much certainty, the opportunity disappears. And so I wanted to get in there while the outcome was still uncertain. But yes, you're right, Alex. That's a really good indicator, and 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 I think we'll get some more information in the next few months about that. Right. Um, any other questions on Telstra? I can see you both are gobsmack speechless that we got this thing sitting on our buy list. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex, uh, wh- what do you do from here? Um, you are. Um, do you have any other pressing um, s- uh, buy IDs at the moment that you're going to run off and and execute, or, or is this a time to be just um, sitting back and uh, uh, and watching.
1: I was actually just looking on LinkedIn about InfraCo's people, Brendan Riley is the CEO I've just looked up. Um, you mm-hmm. can find all that stuff there. Um, in terms of next stages, well, I think it, it's more of the same, really. We're just trying to find good things to buy, good assets that are trading cheaply. Um, it's much more nuanced from here on in, so you've got to do a lot of digging. Um, you know, the things aren't as obvious as they were perhaps a month ago. Um, but I think there's still great opportunities out there and um, you know it's, it's going to be a great time to deploy some cash. So I'm quite excited about what the future holds. Um,
2: How much yeah. cash have you got at the moment?
1: Um, I, I did decide to participate in the Webjet capital raising. Um, I left that to as late as I could. Um, but the, the right. spread was so great that um, that will consume more of my cash. So it's, it's down to about 15% now.
2: Oh, that's still pretty, that's still mm. still
1: some good ammunition. Yeah, that's right. Like I, I am anticipating a number of capital raisings, which will consume some. Um, and probably, I mean, because this is an open-ended vehicle, so I do need to retain some cash. Um, and I am mm. conscious that um, investors in the fund have their own needs for cash as well. And, um, you know, they might need to need to redeem in order to fund certain things going on in their lives. So I, I need to be conscious of that. Um and how I think about the to- overall cash balance, but yeah, we certainly still have plenty of firepower left.
0: Terrific! Well, that means we'll be um, we'll be chatting again uh, once you've bought some more stuff, and we'll uh, mm-hmm. we'll exchange ideas. JC, um, thanks very much for joining me today. Pleasure. And Alex, um, great to have you on board again, um, and hopefully we can we can catch up more often.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks to both of you, and hopefully we can have the video on next time.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm not that keen. I don't want to be looking at either of you. Um, (laughs) Everyone else, thank you for listening.